Welcome to the CME CE podcast, Let's Talk MRSA, 20 Frequently Asked Questions. Please review the complete CME CE information at www.mrsa20faqs.com. This podcast is designed to clarify frequently asked questions in serious MRSA infections that pose a threat to patient safety and add to the healthcare burden. Episodes released weekly are structured into four learning modules. Learners can apply for credit after reviewing each learning module. This is the third learning module, Clinical Tactics for MRSA Infections. There are seven episodes in this learning module. This is the sixth episode. In this episode, Dr. Thomas Fowler, Jr. from Northeastern Ohio University's College of Medicine in Rootstown, Ohio, shares his clinical experience. Thank you, Dr. File, for joining us once again. Now, in our previous discussions, we focused on the optimal management of skin infections and pneumonia. In this episode, we would like to talk a little bit about the management of MRSA bacteremia and infective endocarditis. Now, studies have shown that Staph aureus is a leading cause of catheter-related bloodstream infections. So, Dr. File, what are the current guideline recommendations for treating MRSA catheter-related bloodstream infections? Well, from the standpoint of antimicrobial therapy, for adults at least with bacteremia, vancomycin or daptomycin in the standard recommended dose at this point in time anyway is 6 milligrams per kilogram per dose IV once daily for daptomycin are the recommended agents. There have been some studies to show that if you add rifampin to vancomycin, this is actually not recommended for bacteremia, particularly for native valve endocarditis, and some studies have shown less good results by using that combination. Okay, and I guess the other question would be then, um, should the catheters be removed, and when should the catheters be removed for these patients? Well, basically, they should all be removed. Uh, if you look at our IDSA guidelines on management of catheter-related bloodstream infections, it, it does re- recommend removal of catheters from all patients with uh, MRSA bacteremia. And after that, blood culture should be drawn after removal uh, to assess the control or clearing of the bacteremia. And at least while they're on antimicrobial therapy, and as far as duration of therapy is concerned, we count the first day of antibiotic therapy as the first day of the negative blood culture. Okay. Um, now, in regards to duration of therapy, the guidelines seem to separate patients by either short duration of 14 days of treatment versus long duration of treatment, either four to six weeks of treatment. How can we determine what is appropriate for the patient? Well, the, the duration of therapy for MRSA bacteremia, I think, is based on, on several factors. Uh, and for adults, the recommended minimum duration of therapy for uncomplicated bacteremia is two weeks, and uncomplicated bacteremia is defined by the following. There has to be exclusion of endocarditis. There has to be no implanted prosthesis, which includes, uh, like even artificial hips or or other arthroplasties, uh, prosthetic valves or cardiac devices. It has to be associated with follow-up blood cultures drawn usually two to four days after the initial set were positive that are now negative. And there has to be defervescence of fever within two to three days and no evidence of metastatic sites of infection. So all of those have to be um, in place to call it uncomplicated bacteremia. Now, if any of these are not in place, then we call that complicated bacteremia. And then four to six weeks of therapy is recommended. Um, And, and of course, that's going to depend to a certain extent whether it's four or six, depending upon the extent of the infection. 
Okay, and so you, you mentioned uh, endocarditis for these patients. What is the risk for infective endocarditis in patients with MRSA bacteremia? Well, well first let me say that there's several potential complications uh, for staph uh, aureus bacteremia, and according to at least recent studies from Duke, about one-third of patients who have staph aureus bacteremia will develop local complications or, or distant septic metastasis, and, and this includes endocarditis. And, and another study from Duke investigated the characteristics that might predict these types of complications and, and, and identified four, and namely these are the presence of persistent bacteremia, that is three or four days after appropriate antimicrobial therapy, um, if it's community acquisition, if there's presence of skin lesions suggesting distant metastasis, and if there's persistent fever. Now, other risk factors uh, include a delay in therapy, so it's important for us to treat these as soon as, as we are aware of this bacteremia. And certainly endocarditis is one of the most severe complications of staph aureus bacteremia. And we know, as you said, that staph aureus is currently the primary etiologic agent for all types of endocarditis. So what we need to do is when we have staph aureus bacteremia, we need to search for this, and this often means doing a transesophageal echocardiogram. Okay. Um, so you touched on this a little bit, but is there anything that can be done to reduce the risk of infective endocarditis in these patients? Well, I think, first of all, we need to be aware of the, and, and appreciate the virulence of staph aureus and investigate all cases of bacteremia for complications such as uh, endocarditis. And I've seen several patients who you put on IV therapy, they seem to deprivesce very quickly, and they're sent home very quickly on oral therapy, and that's not really appropriate. We have to make sure that there's no evidence of distant seeding. Uh, certainly, uh, aseptic insertion and maintenance of intravenous lines is extremely important since, as you stated, catheter-related bloodstream infections are a common source of staph aureus bacteremia, so that's very important. Uh, the value of decolonization, uh, particularly on the skin, in patients in the hospital setting is yet to be defined, uh, but it seems intuitive to me that good hygiene will be of benefit to reduce risk, so certainly it's a well-recognized risk factor. Well, great. Uh, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you again, Dr. File, for your insights. Now, I'd like to thank you all again for joining us for these podcast discussions. Thank you.